Okay, guys, going to do a little minute or so before the podcast to let you know what really happened, to tell you, listen out for this, listen out for that. And we're joined by Steve Fezzik. And Fez, you love the people, don't you? Yes. I agree. He does. He loves the people. And you don't, you're not selfish, are you? No. Exactly. See that? That's an inside joke. So when, <laughs> so when you listen, you're going to say, oh, oh, that's why this preview is a good thing. And let me tell you, Fez's best bet was exceptional. And, and, and it, it was, eight and two in a year with the, this specific type of bet with all of his picks in that area. One thing, Dave Astor, who I back like crazy, like fanatically, I offered him a chance to fade or for me to book him. And what's it been, about a half hour we taxed him on that? Yeah. How's it doing? He just got back to me. He said, no, I don't want it. The Mac Jones today changes everything. Ah. So, and remember now, the recording happens, you know, in the morning or, you know, it's, it takes a little bit of time to record stuff, get it edited and ready for this. But you see how I am? When I see something that's wrong, I don't care who bet it. I don't think about closing line value. I strike. I strike. Mackenzie, why don't you take it? Because you, you think it's all a fugazi. I'll give you two to one on fields. 200, 400? Yeah. Or do 100, 200. I don't want you to have a conniption fit. Yeah, right. I, I got I to gotta pay these bills. 100, 200 sounds fine. Now, somehow, some way, I'm betting against Kyle Shanahan's cousin on what Kyle Shanahan's <laughs> going to bet. I don't know if that's stupid or ballsy. <laughs> we'll find that out. And I'm not saying this is going to be applicable, but... He's a janitor at a high school. <laughs> Has to take the bus to work every day. I mean, if you're betting against the guy's cousin, it's kind of dumb, but we'll see. Because I'm sort of lucky, too. I can't help it, but I'm lucky. All right, let's listen. This is the NCAA tournament is over. Masters is starting. But, hey, the Masters starts on Thursday. It doesn't draw till Thursday. So how are we going to talk Masters edition? Steve Fezzik in studio. We got a jam-packed show. And let's get straight to it. We want to show you guys it's important. And this is something we're going to try to do during football, too, is have the, the, the meat on the bone at the front and have the fun at the back. And anyone who... Almost like a mullet in a way. And <laughs> the, people, the people who like the fun, or as we call fun, some of you say, I ain't fun. First topic, NCAA tournament recap. I fed so Baylor dominates. One of my thoughts was, and we dug in, and it was just true, true, true. Baylor had a COVID pause. It was about 20 days in February. And... For about eight games, or specifically eight games after the COVID pause, they struggled two and six against the spread. So fell short of expectations six out of eight times. In other games, you just, every other game, other than the eight games after the COVID pause, and by the way, those eight games ended with the first game of the tournament. That was the eighth game. Every other game, McKenzie, the ATS record of Baylor was? 18 and four. Okay, so this was a team... As we talked about, Fez, that throughout the year, if you looked at the future odds, Baylor and Gonzaga weren't that different. Exactly right. And in fact, 
there was a, a bet. You could bet the field or you could bet those two teams because those two teams were the clear-cut best teams for the first 18 games of the season. You mean before the COVID pause? That's right. And then, so to me, it was a situation of Baylor was underrated because there was, and this is a reoccurring theme. What, how is it? Let's think about the nature of value. How do you get value? How, how is mispricing created or come to be? Number one is a team's results are not indicative of the upcoming or the, the event in question. So let's say at the French Open with Sampras. Let's go back a little bit. Pete Sampras, best player at Wimbledon, one of the best players on hard court, an average or you know below average, however you want to say it, not a champion-level player on clay. So if you say, wow, so-and-so just won or Sampras just won on grass, it's like, okay, if you're focusing on that into the French Open, you're making a mistake. That result is deceiving compared to what we're talking about for the event. In this case, we're saying Baylor, two and six against the spread, doing that eight-game run. And we're, or the last eight games coming in the second game of this tournament, you would have said that. And the question is, is that indicative of the team? I think it was an open question that it was indicative of the meaning. I wasn't sure it wasn't something else. It wasn't just COVID. I wasn't sure it was just COVID. But now we're kind of looking and saying, yeah. And it's easy to look back in hindsight, but you don't know at the time, but we raised the possibility that it was the COVID. And we didn't know if they'd come back. They could have ended up losing the second round and we could still have said it was COVID. We don't know. But now how do we explain this? How Baylor dominated a team that we were talking about, everyone was talking about as potentially the best team of all time. And I think it would have been fair to say Gonzaga would have been considered the best team of all time if they had won by 10 in the finals. What do you think of that, Steve? Oh, I agree, because you break the season down into two separate components. Well, they're undefeated in the regular season. It's not like they just played the West Coast Conference. They did play enough quality opponents where they beat Virginia. They beat West Virginia. I agree. You know, they, they won by margin. And- exactly, by margin. So in December, they were the best team. And then you fast forward to the tournament, and if they had rolled through the tournaments – with an average cover going into the finals of seven per game, impressive. Yeah, I think, it, you know, first undefeated team winning a title in this hypothetical since 76, dominant regular season, and they were on their way except for the UCLA game if they had won the finals, and again, now it's except for the final two games, and thus they're not one of the best teams of all time. Back to the point of Baylor. So literally, and I didn't know this, looking at a note McKenzie flashed, is on February 23rd, which was just prior to that restart. So they had about 20 days off. It was ending right around February 23rd. Just prior to that restart, Baylor was plus 325 to win the title. So right now it presupposes there wasn't going to be any consequence of the COVID effectively. Because if that's their high point, Mm -hmm. it's like the rest is going to do them good, must have been what was thought. (laughs) Because you would think at minimum before 20 days off, you it would have been just as high. Now, like, this is surprising to me, right, that you would have expected that there would have been at least a 50-cent adjustment for the inactivity and the COVID issues. I agree. And Gonzaga, 
at the time was plus 275. So there was only a 50 cent difference, plus 275 for Gonzaga, plus 325 for Baylor at the time, February 23rd. They were 1A and 1B, in that case even more so. You know, now they were co-favorites effectively at that point. Then the two and six. And it's important to realize, though, it's easy after the fact to say we should have seen that the COVID was the issue. All you can do at times is raise the question. There's no, whenever you're predicting the future, by definition, you don't have certainty. If you have certainty, if it's just a puzzle, if you just have A, B, and C, you know the answer, that's a different endeavor. This isn't that. This isn't a fixed election or something or a fixed game where, or uh, uh, something on Survivor that you know the two with certain information or certain results. This is there's going to be a distribution of possible results. The question becomes, what are the predictive variables? And we thought perhaps Baylor would trend upwards as they got distance from the COVID pause. We weren't sure, but that's one of the reasons, quite frankly, Fez, we had a disagreement where you thought there was real value on Arkansas plus four or so. Was that correct? Yeah, I took Houston plus... Hey, I got five. Oh, it, was, it was Houston, I'm yeah, sorry. Hey, I got five, right? They lose by 19, and you were like... At that point... There had been the games from the second, third, and I guess maybe fourth game. And you, I basically saw the trend line because you you were like, okay, they didn't cover their first game, Baylor, and then they beat... And again, Wisconsin. when you're number one seed, that's a choice often. That's right, that's right. Then it was a coin flip game. And then you, then you saw, hey, they beat a nine seed in Wisconsin by just barely double digits, but then each... Wait, just barely double digits? What does that even mean? Right, they, I think they won by 11 or 12. Well, what I'm saying is when you win by 12, that's a it's nice impressive win. impressive win. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's not bring it to the Fezzik world. That's a nice win. Go ahead. Right, and what where I'm getting at is each and every game, they keep getting better. So they have a, a more impressive win win by about the same margin now against Villanova, and then the Arkansas game win by nine. So so here's a team that literally game by game— Arkansas game won by nine. Yeah, they won by nine. Arkansas was a three seed, so that was their toughest, toughest opponent pre-Final oh, Four. Oh, this was before the Houston game. That's okay, right. Okay. That's right. So, so what, back to the COVID story. So just not that. They had, were winning—what was it? By almost five points a game against the spread. I mean, that I, again, I don't—I think it's dangerous— very dangerous to always want extremes or that we can spin it. Like, unless it's 20 points, we're going to spin it however we want. They won and they covered all those games. It's pretty It's pretty good, right? Yes. And it did feel like it was trending upwards. Yes. But somehow you just said, I like Houston. And then they had, you know, they had that, a full week off right Why'd before you like the Final Houston? Four. I liked Houston because I bought into the picture of, you know, Houston was a pretty good number two seed. Historically, yeah, but the line was supposed to be three. Mm-hmm. I mean, that like, like if all you have to do is say his. I mean, that's always the question. If Ken Palm says something, and the market says two points different, the question is, do you want to play on it or against it? Personally, if I had to play, well, let, let me ask you: if you have to play every one, what do you do? Meaning, you're for the question is, do you want to? Every time there's a two point or more variation from Ken Palm for the whole season. You have to bet 100 bucks on it, blind, and you decide before the season, you bet on or against the Kempom variation. Meaning, do you want to be on Kempom's side or the market side? Against Kempom. And why is that? Because a lot of bettors use the Kempom as a grounding point, and so they're going to, by rote, just follow those numbers and be betting the other way. And yet, despite that, 
this differential is still out there, meaning the people that are really digging in and doing their own numbers, are they have a strong opinion against Ken Palm on those games, and they're backing it. And with it's their, not so much a strong opinion. There's a factor that isn't being accounted for. That's right. As, anytime you have an algorithm, it's one thing if Ken Palm took his algorithm, then put a human touch on it and said, yeah, but I understand so-and-so was out these games. And again, I don't really understand his algorithm enough to know when injuries are accounted for and travel or whatever. But in general, if something is not known and you trust it, a, a, a power rating or whatever, and if you have a variation, you want to bet with your trusted variation. If Ken Palm, before it became known widely, there was a couple years Ken Palm was used by some people. At that point, I would have most certainly wanted to be with Ken Palm's buys. Once it became, as you said, a grounding point, it became kind of the de facto starting conversation. Whenever it varies from that, it's being, it's varying in the face of all of this love and respect. And that means there's people with enough money to move the market saying, We're, we disagree in this case. I'd rather be on that side. I think that's really well said that once it becomes publicly available and everyone has it, now all of a sudden, if there's a difference, I agree with you. I think go against it. All things being equal, got to evaluate each individual game. And I would make the case to some degree the history of seeds. They're just not going to be mispriced. There was no reason this year that there should be a mispricing on what the seeds, um, uh, you know, the idea that the, the one seed should be five instead of three historically. In general, there's probably a reason it's that. Mm. And I think that what we saw in the national championship game was some people that knew, knew Baylor was really good. Because in hindsight, I mean, this is what we were debating before the show. What should, if they played again this week, Baylor, Gonzaga, rematch, line was four or so in the first one? Four and a quarter, yeah. Okay. Is what would the line be in a rematch? I think Gonzaga minus one. And who are you betting? Baylor. Mm, I think you're probably right. A Baylor team was, I mean, again, it, if they just came out of nowhere or they were the 14th, they were the co-favorites. And to me, that's meaningful. Now, what we're going to do is join straight out of Vegas on Fox Sports Radio, 6 Eastern, five days a week, every weekday. I did about a, you know, modest five, six, seven minute discussion about the fork in the road that Gonzaga faces. And I think it's fascinating because for me, I'm an old time, in a way, a very youthful but old school guy in that I like teamwork. I, like, I don't want there to be mercenaries. I don't mind a mercenary in a movie or whatever, but I want my team to be a team. And you could make the case Gonzaga has been the best version of getting good athletes and still having team, um, you know, an old school team secret sauce, you know, like Butler did, like uh, Loyola Chicago has done at different levels. On the other hand, you got the Kentuckys of the world typically winning titles, at least one. You got Duke winning titles. In general, it's been the, the one and doneers, the super recruits have performed better in the tournament. Gonzaga could be the first team that has both, or they could be a team that has neither eventually, not quite getting almost like Stringer and Avon during their real disagreement 
when Stringer wanted Avon to whack out Clay Davis. And Slim Charles said, that's an assass assassination. <laughs> you need a, a Day of the Jackal type mofo is what they said. But what Avon said to Stringer was, he goes, what's bothering you is you're not sure if you're smart enough to deal with them or you're hard enough to do this thing. And you could say Stringer was the best of both, potentially. The smartest gangster, smartest drug dealer, but still, uh, you know, cold-blooded enough to be that killer. Or you could say he was neither. And that's the debate. He wasn't hard enough or smart enough. It's a de debate with tweeners. Now it's, you know, these big safeties that are supposed to be playing linebacker and Simmons from Arizona. Are, they, are these tweener, you know, tight ends that can block a little bit but are receivers? Big debate. I think Gonzaga faces that question. Let's listen. Gonzaga is a top five college basketball program, and they're starting to get the recruits to line up with that because I think the analogy would be Clemson in college football is Clemson under Sweeney had amazing results going neck and neck against Alabama when they were recruiting, uh, you know, the 12th best in the country, the 15th best, and then they moved to like the ninth. So meaning Alabama is like number one or two every year. Clemson was in the teens and Clemson was going toe to toe. Now in the last year or two, Clemson's getting an equal recruit quality and now the question is, does Clemson get better? Now, what we saw last year was they didn't. Mm -hmm. That somehow, some way, with better players with than they had in the past, with Trevor Lawrence in his last year, they just get dominated by an Ohio State team that got dominated by Alabama. Now, that doesn't mean the old transitive property doesn't mean so much that Alabama would have dominated Clemson for sure, but you know what? I think they would have. So... Does Gonzaga lose something that is part of their secret sauce as they start getting these elite players? Or is the secret sauce still there? Now there's just more talent, and now they finally win it. What's your gut feeling? I think the secret sauce is still there. And, you know, this year with four projected first or second rounders in the NBA, I think it's just a matter of time that they continue to recruit this way till they finally get a title. Except they're recruiting differently than they have in the past. So the question, so would you say this current team is that Gonzaga had that played last night, is that representative to you of the old way or the new way? As in recruiting good players but not great players that come together as a team, or were these great players? I think a combination. These players are head and shoulders better than any recruitment that they've ever had before, but they played the Gonzaga way. They played mm -hmm. together. And do you think it's going to be a – and listen, there's no right answer to this. There's going to be a true answer. We're just going to have to see what it is. But the case could be made when you – it could have been an advantage they couldn't get those players. So isn't the ultimate question going to be, whatever the character issue is, whatever the secret of we like kids that had a paper route, or whatever it is, they were going for a certain type of kid. Now, they, they weren't choosing. It's like the guy who has, he's loyal to his girlfriend, but he doesn't have that many other options. 
you still appreciate the loyalty. But Paul Newman being loyal to his girlfriend slash wife eventually, that tells you something, right? Yeah. So now imagine a situation where there's an average-looking schmo and he's loyal, and lo and behold, he becomes a lottery winner. Or lo and behold, he's a movie star. Or maybe think of the situation or something on, you know, Jersey Shore. All of a sudden, they're famous. Now, he's tempted. He's tempted because it's not necessarily some, you know, whatever. The temptation's going to be different. Gonzaga's going to be tempted to take the compromise that this guy's so good that to some degree, whatever the secret sauce that might be missing, you know, maybe it's not missing. Maybe it's there. We just got to bring it out of them. And all of a sudden, you become the worst of both worlds where you've got talent but not as much talent as a Duke or Kentucky. But then the secret sauce is ruined because you're injecting those non-secret sauce people into ah, the program. Interesting. You bring in a couple prima donnas. You know, and Timmy, the big man for Gonzaga, had a little bit of that in him. Remember, he was showboating. Well, you're, you're judging from a distance. You know, Go ahead. That mustache does not look nearly as good as I thought it did a couple days ago. You know, So <laughs> now you think the mustache is a sign of him being, like, iconoclastic. <laughs> he, he, he's looking for attention. Oh, he's definitely looking for attention. And the old Gonzaga wasn't, was it? They weren't. I mean, Morrison didn't cry over attention. No. Not over that, no. <laughs> I'm R.J. Bell. We're straight out of Vegas. What do you think of that, McKenzie? I think it's interesting that they have four great players. One's a senior, one's a junior, one's a sophomore, and Jalen Suggs is a freshman. So I think you can blend, you know, players that are really good that need a couple years versus those Jalen Sugg types. And the end result is to lose? Well, yeah, I mean, they got to look hard in the mirror and try a lot better the next time. But oh, so you think it was a lack of effort? I just don't think they were as good as Baylor. I think Baylor was a lot better. And so they... that's what we're saying is yeah. that this culmination, we're say, like to some degree this was going to be a coronation of the Gonzaga way. And now it's not an indictment, but it certainly has postponed the coronation. And the question becomes, was this a moment in time in which the ships were kind of passing and going in different directions, and that the old Gonzaga is going to fade, and mm. the new Gonzaga, which, again, the new being defined as more about talent, less about uh, culture, I think is a good way to say it. And usually then it feels like Gonzaga, if they stay about culture and have more talent, then that's the perfect storm. But yes. you don't think every you don't think Coach K is going for that. You don't think everyone's going for that. But there was this magical moment that Gonzaga felt like it had both, and this was the year. And you got to wonder the recruits that watched the juniors in high school this year that watched this team are going to be very excited to play for the Zags. And now the question becomes, and with the co coach few and everything is going to be how much temptation. Do you take and how much do you defer on? Because they're going to be tempted. Gonzaga is going to be tempted to go for the talent. Because the takeaway here could be we just didn't have enough talent. Mm -hmm. We got the character. We just got to go a few more compromises. And listen, it's not as if always talent and culture are inversely correlated. But almost always. Think about it. Who is in any walk of life? But let's look at sports. Tom Brady. Got some, he's 6'4". Tom Brady's talent on the list of quarterbacks all time is not in the top 100 when it comes to measurables, 
the kind of thing, you know, how, you know, all the things that go into the combine. Yes. There's some secret sauce with Tom Brady. And it strikes me that if we said Michael Jordan, well, here's a guy that got, you know, the, the old story got cut from his high school basketball team. Now they say it was a freshman. The freshman never made the team, mm -hmm. but still he was a top recruit, but there was no sense. If people went directly players from high school to the pros back when Jordan was in high school, he wouldn't have sniffed the pros out of high. He wasn't one of the top recruits in the entire country. So he had a minimum amount of talent, that minimum threshold, and then there was something beyond it, work ethic, whatever. He was pathological with his work. Mm -hmm. Name me the greatest of all time in any sport, American sport, in which it was both the most character, you know, top, top A-plus culture, team, whatever secret sauce, and talent. Usually the Wilt Chamberlains versus Bill Russell, right? They both had a lot of talent. Wilt had otherworldly talent. You could say Barkley versus Jordan. You know, not that Barkley didn't have a lot of good character or whatever, but he didn't have that last level that MJ had. You know, obviously with quarterbacks, it's hard to find a quarterback that the most talented does really well. Usually the most talented quarterbacks are the ones that tend to bust. Yeah, you think of Jeff George, right? He's the, the classic guy that didn't even achieve, you know. Or you, I mean, we can go up and down the list. I mean, if you just think who's been the best quarterbacks the last 20 years, the one talent guy on that list is Aaron Rodgers. I would say otherwise you've got Peyton Manning, who had, you know, he had the frame on him, but certainly not one of the great athletes. Tom Brady, no. Drew Brees, <laughs> Drew Brees, no. no. And then, you know, we can debate from there who, who else is on the list, but I think that's the – let's put Russell Wilson on the list, I think it's fair to say. Now, Mahomes, we'll see, right? I mean, because as much as we can say about Mahomes so far, what we know for sure is that he's won one title and that's it. And I know people want to coordinate him, the, you know, the best ever or whatever. We'll see. Now, he'll be an interesting debate because he had a lot of talent – but the guy got drafted number 10 not that long ago when there's going to be, what, five quarterbacks picked before 10 this year? Yes. So there was something that was missing, at least perceived to be, and I find this to be one of the great things about sports, and it's the following. It's not something you could replicate in a lab. If you say, build me the robo quarterback, you get Marinovich. And for those a little bit older... You remember Tony, I think it was, Marinovich, the robo-quarterback, the guy that the father, if I, as I recall, built him to be the perfect quarterback. Didn't let him have candy. Is that right? Yeah, growing up. Well, that sounds mean. And you know what happened? Not much. Not much. And then you've got, again, a Tom Brady who doesn't start his senior season, the whole season in college, and he's the greatest of all time. That's what makes sports great. We look at Rocky the movie and say that's a fairy tale chuck chuck webner got beat okay yeah but the reality is tom brady in a way is rocky and in a way because he physically shouldn't have been able to do it but he's done it and you know what most of us physically aren't top 100 of one percent in the top and thus we can relate to those guys and in a way gonzaga has been that and now they still haven't won it. That hasn't been good enough. With Tom Brady, it's been he's the GOAT. Gonzaga, 
they're a good second place team. They're like Rocky won. Creed still <laughs> won that fight. It was a split decision. The question is, and this is unplanned, <laughs> does he win in Rocky two, Gonzaga? But I got to be honest with you. Gonzaga's lost in Rocky two and three. Now the question is, you know, when do, do they win, if ever? And now they're changing, it seems. Does that push them over the top? Or does it make them even further away from the goal as they mm. lose the secret sauce? All right, Fez, ATS margin, last thing on Gonzaga, they not only lost, obviously, but other than the UNLV game, which we, on the radio, we actually made this mistake. We had forgotten, because in the database, UNLV, when they beat Duke in 90, uh, they, the line was not over 10, you know, because I guess we'll explain it this way, is Baylor's win was by, was it 20 and a half points, McKenzie? Against the spread, yes. Yeah. And I think almost certainly the UNLV win against Duke, which, again, we're looking in. It's not in the database. We're looking through the newspapers then to get the right line for our database. But uh, this is one, uh, either the first or the second, more likely the second biggest ATS margin of any NCAA title game. 35 years or so from 85 in the modern era. And let me say that again specifically from 85 on the modern era, as we call it, 64 teams. Domination. So potentially, if you think about it, how surprising was Monday? The best team, perhaps entering that game of all time, got beat by the biggest margin or second biggest of a title game in 35 years. That's a surprise. Yes. Uh, big time. And, and start to finish. Big time, you say. Big time surprise. <laughs> well, it, it was almost linear, right? Where the, I mean, not completely linear, but if you smoothed it out, it was just Baylor. They dominated the first half, got up by 10, halfway through the second so half. And they won big. And Gonzaga never made a run out of them in the second half. And, never made a run. And you had an interesting point. And we were debating what should the line of halftime been. You guys, Mackenzie, you were a little surprised it was so high. Typically, though, the books don't take much, the first half, into account very often, it seems. And usually the squares are the ones that say, hey, they, they're up by 10 and they're getting six. Give me the better team. You know, what are the factors that, that when the first half becomes more meaningful? I think that's an interesting debate in the offseason or discussion. But you thought Gonzaga kind of uh, quickly let us hear about it. They did not go down fighting. Exactly right. So with about six minutes to play, Gonzaga trails by 15. In most scenarios, almost every scenario, a team that's favored throws the kitchen sink at their opponent, tries to trap, does whatever they can, even starts fouling to go ahead and give themselves a tiny. You even start fouling. Even at five Isn't minutes. That common? Yeah. Oh, you mean earlier? Okay. Right, right. Well, and you, you think about it, the odds of winning the way that Gonzaga played was approaching zero, and at a certain point it was zero. Right. But really, if you're down, like, it'd be interesting to do a mathematical simulation on this. Let's say you're down, so. With five minutes left, how much were they down? Right about 15. Okay. At that point, if you fouled as quickly as you could for the rest of the game, would you say they could foul 30 times? Let me think about this. So each possession on offense is going to take 20 seconds so they can foul three times a minute? Well, first of all, what do you mean 20 seconds? On offense. Why would it take 20 seconds? Well, you're running your offense and taking No, you're not. Shot. You're taking quick shot. Like You're high variance like crazy. 10 what? seconds. Seven seconds or less. All right. Like the 
So you can foul seven times a minute times five minutes, 35 times. Yes, you can foul 30 times. Okay. Somehow I did that almost instantly. <laughs> okay. Now, what is the odd? So now there's going to be, in theory, 60. I guess there's going to be one-on-ones at some point, perhaps, or maybe not. 60 foul shots. All right, so 30 times. So if you only – that's interesting. So let's say they shoot poorly and 50%, which is, you know, how unlikely is it a team – what, I'm assuming Gonzaga shot about 77% or something? It doesn't matter. We're just mm-hmm. gonna, What are the odds that over 60 foul shots they're going to hit 50% instead of 77%? Whatever those are, all right, let's assume they hit 50 and now that means in 30 possessions, they would have 30 points, right? A little bit less if they're in the one-on-one. Okay. So now, what are the odds that with those 30 possessions, there can be 45 points scored in three? So that means if they're shooting all threes effectively, you would have to make 15. So you would have to make 50. So that actually somehow shockingly lined up like that. So... If they made 50% of their threes, the team trailing, Gonzaga, and Bale only made 50% of their foul shots, with five minutes left, if they could get the 30 possessions, it would have been a tie game. Yes. Could have happened. Yes. The odds are greater than zero, but aren't the odds even higher than we might think? Like, it doesn't seem crazy for a 77% likelihood over 30 reps to hit 50. Right? No, not at all. And look at Alabama against UCLA. They shot 11 for 25 from the free throw line. And the thing that I think that would increase it even more would be that once you started missing, that would perpetuate itself just psychologically. Right? I mean, the whole hack sure. and shack thing, you know, if, 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 if Shaq was hot making his free throws, they don't foul as much. If you're missing, um, McKenzie flashed his first 28 minutes. It was 134 combined points. Last nine minutes, 22 points scored. Okay. Lab total was around 170 to 175. Okay. All right. Any closing thoughts on the title game? So they went down without much of a fight. The question is why. I think the two possibilities, well, I think I had one and you had one. Yours was more, hey, they thought it was futile because they weren't athletic enough, right? Or how would you say Yeah, I think that they, Mark Few felt, boy, if we could try this, but we're just. This is what called futile is. Yes. Just say it like that, right? It's like it wasn't going to win. They couldn't win that way. That's right. Were you going to tell a big story around it? No. Let me think. Let's see if I can do the story. Mark Few, the coach at Gonzaga, sat there and he thought, now think about this. He was there. He was at the stadium itself. There were basketballs around and people in the stands, but not as many people as usual. And he thought, could we win this game? And he looked over at Baylor and saw the athletes. And he looked over at his and saw not so athletic. And he thought, maybe, but is it worth it? And then he said, no, let's go home. Is that a good one? Okay. Now, I do think, I do think, uh, say that again, Mackenzie, Mark Few versus Mark Futal? Futal. Oh, you're doing a wordplay. I thought yellow was, isn't yellow like urgent, you you did something wrong? What colors that you did? Yellow is like it's super on point. Okay, but when you did something wrong, what color is that? Like me. Yellow background. 
Yeah, we probably don't want to have the same color. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But, yes, Mark Few thought it was futile. (laughs) I thought we were mispronouncing his name or something. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, it was was a good play on words. We just got to get the color schemes right. (laughs) It's kind of appropriate we got the millennial in the control room just typing stuff out. (laughs) I like it. Okay. Um, I do think that it could have been a calculation of, if we lose by 30, it becomes an indictment. Losing by 15 is a loss. So if you thought, and that's an interesting question, if you thought the odds were 1% to come back, but you thought the odds of getting crushed were significantly higher too, which is true in a high-variance game, you're going to be desperate. Now you could say not fouling there, not fighting to the end, increases the expectation in the next 10 years of titles for Gonzaga. Yes, because you only had a one percent chance to win that this year. Uh-huh. So you, if if it's going to have any tangible impact going forward, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> you know what we should do? Do me a favor, Fez. Say now, take it, Brad. Don't scream it, but say, "I agree." I agree. And then say, "I disagree." I disagree. Say yes. Yes. Say yes one more time. Yes. Say no. No. Okay. We can put that on the board now, and you could have skipped the show so far. (laughs) (laughs) Any other thoughts on the title game? No other thoughts. (laughs) What? Record that too. All right. Well, here's some work Fez did that was quite strong. And I can't remember. Whose idea was this? It's your idea. Oh, okay. But still... Execution is important. And you and this is actually something you do, all joking aside, exceptionally well. Um, first, though, your theme. I've paid all the dues. I'm going to pay. Yeah. The question was with game 17, and as we think about the NFL season, 17th game is important. It screws up a lot of things, in my opinion. But we'll have a 2,000-yard rusher. All that stuff probably at some point soon. But what particularly got my rackles up, I think, is that how you say it? I don't know. What I got pissed about was Washington, my pick to win the NFC East, a plus 350, had to play egregiously the Buffalo Bills. I'm thinking the 17th game, you got to give them maybe the second, third best team in football. And it got me thinking, which teams suffered the most in expectation and benefited the most from the specific 17th game? It's not just generically a 17th game. It's a specific game. So, Fez, we had an idea how to approach this. Why don't you explain how we did it? So we took a look at how a team would would have done – in a 16-game schedule, and then said, what's their projected winning percentage? Whoa, whoa, hold on a second. How a team would have done in a 16-game schedule? How do we do that? So we started with the 17-game schedule, the season wins on all the teams. All right, so those season wins are out right now in multiple spots. That's right. So, for example, give me, what is the Kansas City Chiefs season win? 12. All right, 12 out of 17. Correct? Yes. yes. You need a minute? No, I'm trying to find the yeah, take your time. With the season ones. Oh. Yeah, I mean, why would we be looking at that right now? I have it. There we go. Okay. So how many for Kansas City? Twelve. There we go. Now, then what? So 
what's back out the 17th game that just got so we added. Know, we know that 17th game. We know what that game is. And, turns and it's out, based upon division. You know, certain divisions are playing cross-conference. Right. So Kansas City is... And, and just to be clear, not divisions, but divisions with the one game that's slotted with the first versus first, et cetera. That's right. So Kansas City is hosting Green Bay. So took a look at that and... Based upon a three-and-a-half-point expected spread, I came All right, up so with. what you're saying is you looked at that 17th game and you said, what would the spread be? Now, that's your expertise. You estimated it. So in this case, you projected the spread to be what? Three-and-a-half. Who favored? Kansas City okay. at home. And then from there, you could say we can extrapolate the likely win percentage or the expected win percentage. 63%, yes. And then you could say, okay, so that 17th game is giving – 0.63 wins to, by expectation, to Kansas City and 0.37 to the opponent. So now the question is, how many games were they expected, that team expected to win out of the 16? And you could do that by simply, McKenzie, how would you explain doing that? Because you did that work. Took their win total and divided it by six, uh, 17 games. Okay. Now, the problem with that is, and we should have done it a little differently, but I wasn't involved in the sausage, is we should have then, we should have, take, we should have taken out the probability of the 17th, the win share, let's call it the 17th game, and from the macro total of 17, and then with what was remaining, that was the expectation for the 16 games. Since there isn't a huge variation, and it's going to be split up 17 times, it's it, it's skewing thing, it's flattening it out a little bit. That's all. So if anything, the differences might be a couple of hundredths of a win more. Yes. But it, the logic is all strong. It could have been slightly better, but it's all strong. So now we're saying, okay, in the 16 games, they were supposed to win this percentage of games. So let's use an example. Kansas City, who was number one, Kansas City was supposed to win how many games of the 16, what percentage? 71.1. All right, so the numbers totaled 71.1. Their chance of winning the 17th game was 63, you said, correct? Yes. So now they actually are having a tougher time. That game 17 actually makes their schedule harder. Yes. And thus, the difference by win share is in how much harder? And you would say, uh, what was it, 8 was it eight tenths of a, or, or I'm sorry, eight hundredths of a game? One second. Yes. <laughs> We're not pressing the button. Yes. Yes. No. Eight, eight one hundredths. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So you might say eight one hundredths. What the hell? It doesn't matter. But let's look at the extremes. So the reason we got into this at all, I have a feeling the market is not going to probably account for this. There might be an edge. Now, Feds, the reason we even got into this was he was thinking, I like the San Francisco 49ers. And it's like, why? And he said, because they, with their fourth-place schedule, are playing the Cincinnati Bengals. They're no good. I like Joe Burrow, but they're no good. And then the rest of the AFC North is mighty good. That's the rest of the – and you like San Fran to win the division. Yes. So why don't we break down and say, okay, how much of a factor was it? So for San Francisco, their schedule got easier by just a modest amount, 0.04 by our calculations. All right, so let's be clear. 0.04 doesn't have much contact. So San Fran was ranked what when it came from, from hard? In this case, it would be from easy to hard. They were ranked what? Let's see. I don't have the number. i got to count them down. Number 15. 
Number 15. Number 15. Okay. We could have Fez just say all numbers between 1 and like 22. <laughs> have it on the sound before. Yeah. 15. And then, then he could say we could have wait one minute so it was realistic. <laughs> and here fumbling a paper. All right, all right. So they're almost smack even, just a little bit easier than average relative to their other 16 games, and thus the idea that they benefit by only four hundredths of a win, a smidge. Smidge. Okay, so the San Francisco average. Now, the other three teams, Arizona, Seattle, that doesn't seem right to me. Oh, I guess because it's at Cincy. So a lot of teams, that's interesting. We should actually rank this perhaps... Well, no, I guess it matters where you play. But they're a four-point favorite only against Cincinnati in your projection. And that means if it was at, wow, that seems short. So if it was a neutral field, what do you? What did you build them for home for this? Two and a half. Okay. Uh, I would have done two. Because it's moving towards that anyway, and who knows if there's going to be all full stadiums. I think Goodell said. I know they yeah. think they want to, but right. it, would you give me even 20 to 1 that there's not? No. So, you know, I mean, would you give me 10 to 1? I'd give you 2 to 1. Okay, so you're not very certain. I think there's about 75% chance. So wouldn't you account for the fact that it, there's a 25%? Yeah. So that's interesting. I'll give you 2 to 1 on a 75%, on a 25% bet. Let me think about this. That's what you're saying. You're saying I'll give you – I'll assume uh, it's 66% when it's – when it. or I'm sorry, I'll assume it's 34% or 33% when it's 25. I get that 8% edge. That's what that's the Fed's bo- like. Yeah. Except you're not a boogie. I'm gouging. Well, you're not. You're not getting any action because yeah. you don't want any action. But even if it's just that 25% chance, you would want to account for it, wouldn't you? Yes. All right. But that won't affect things too much. So let's go from Arizona, Seattle Rams. What was the effect? So Arizona was the 26th team, Seattle 27th. So the 26th uh, easiest, which means on the hard end uh, of the spectrum. Right, right. So and then finally the Rams 31st. So second to second to worst, most um, uh, negative impact on the Rams. Okay. So looking at this, then Arizona relative to their schedule loses a tenth of a win. All right. And Seattle loses a uh, 12 one-hundredth of a win. So 10, let's say percent of a win. So 10% of a win. And that's a good way to say it. 10% of a win for Kingsbury and Arizona lost because of difficulty of schedule. 12% of a win for Seattle. And Rams and McVay, 25, 24% of a win. They were the second most difficult. So think about that. That's a quarter win. Because of that one game and where San Fran's right smack even, that means effectively if you're not accounting for the 17th game in a way that's – because if you're just thinking – now, listen, any strength of schedule calculation in theory would account for this, but I do think that everyone's thinking about what division do they play, and this 17th win being pulled out or 17th game being pulled out – is really telling that if you just said, heads up, who's going to win more, San Fran or the Rams, that literally that 17th game is a quarter game edge 
for San Francisco. Exactly. I like which, the way. Which is like 17 points, right? Is it one game's worth 35 or one half One game's worth 35. Okay. So a quarter game is going to be divided by four. Eight, eight to nine points. Yeah. So literally, that's another way we could have done it, mm. is how many points was it worth on the course of a, a season? As the as the delta. Oh, you know, I like that. It's almost like on the 16 game schedule, you could say randomly, you get an extra nine points in one game. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about here is is a, over a touchdown of disadvantage for the Rams. Mm-hmm. And you know what we'll do? We're gonna I'll post this up on Twitter after some edits at RJ in Vegas. By the way, I'll, I'll read the five teams right now or so that have the biggest advantage: Carolina, the Raiders. Denver, Jacksonville, Jets. One, two, three, four, five. That's right. So now the reason being Carolina played Houston. That's interesting. So the Raiders playing Chicago gives them a big edge. Because huh? they're home. So they're getting to the AFC all AFC teams, teams are home. Right, but Carolina isn't. That's why Carolina is no, almost the same as, as the Raiders. But what I'm saying is why would the Raiders be second? If you're playing Chicago, how could that be, like, easy? So you got the Raiders better than Chicago this year by a half point, you're saying? Yes. Wow, I don't like that at all. Again, we're debating half points here. But – so the other teams the AFC plays, this can be interesting. Because who, like who plays, uh, let's think about this for a second. Uh, who's the worst teams in the AFC? So who plays the Giants? Second. Miami. All right, and they're next on the line. Yeah, so let's just, that's interesting. Let's take the AFC teams and see who they play. So we say Chicago is the Raiders, and then Detroit playing Denver. So how much better do you think the Raiders are than Denver? I think Denver's probably better than the Raiders this year. Take a look at where my numbers are right now. Let's Give me a second or two. Give me a second or two here. I've paid all the dues. I'm going to pay. Yeah. I've got the Raiders just a smidge better. Well, I think we should consider a bet. Hmm. So, okay. So what's the win total say? Raiders seven and a half. Mm-hmm. Broncos seven and a half under minus 21. So you're saying they're saying it's a smidge. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, why don't we do this? Because next week I'm going to come in with all my quarterbacks. I had three weeks to do it. I was hoping you forgot about this. Yeah, yeah. And I have, but I'm going to do it. And what we're going to do, though, is is, uh, I'll, you know, tempt you on it. You know, it seems like I should be getting a little something there, but we'll figure it out. We'll figure. I know you like to, you know, not necessarily have the handicap win it, but you want to screw people over on the the bet creation. Doesn't tend to work with me necessarily, but I like Denver here, and the reason I would over the Raiders is I do think what's being misunderstood, and this came from a one source that I don't even remember what it was, but it really struck me, is the Raiders pretty much traded away and gave away their O line or multiple pieces out of money issues. It's a cash flow issue. So if you're giving up your offensive line, like a starting center that's elite that you could get a third-round pick for, is I don't know how that helps the team at all. Um, As in, it's not like they're doing something now that they're going to be able to recoup later or, you know, 
Maybe they have to be forced to draft in that area, and if so, it hurts them in other areas. It just feels like if an NFL team, it's not the salary cap, but rather it's cash flow, that feels like a big negative. You know what's interesting is you brought up the point about the Raiders historically have had trouble with the cash flow as an organization. Well, I think when there was a transition from Oakland to the – after they got Gruden – I thought that the point of it all was a distraction to get him to Vegas more than winning. I don't think Al Davis or whatever, I don't know anything about their cash flow, but go ahead. I'm just wondering if with now with the year of the pandemic and no fans, if all of a sudden the Raiders have gone from, oh, we're home free now financially to, hey, we got to cut corners for a little bit more. I mean, that seems like just a restating of it seems like the report of a cash flow could be viable. So I agree. All right. So, again, the teams that benefit the most from the 17th game relative to their expectations in the other 16, Carolina, the Raiders, Denver, Jacksonville, the Jets. The teams that have it worst, and we said it was uh, one, two, three, four, five. So six and seven worst were Arizona and Seattle. Now the final five, Dallas has it bad because, remember, Washington is next. Well, Washington has to play at Buffalo, but Dallas at New England. Huh. And you've got it so... You have the line is... That's interesting. Wow, I'm confused. So the line is seven. So Buffalo is seven points better in your projection than Washington. And Dallas is three points worse, or New England's three points better. Okay. I accept that line. I like that New England line seems right. I think that Washington line might be a little high, but I I think you're generally right there. Okay, so the question is, it's .4 wins versus .3 wins, but Dallas, this is interesting. So the average expected wins for Dallas is 55%, Washington's 47 So the win total difference is how much between them? One and a half. Dallas was nine and a half and Washington eight. I'd like to go heads up there. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Yes. Yes. I mean, doubling down on your division bet. um, You know, sometimes they have those head-to-head matchups with lines. So Mm -hmm. that might come out. Mm -hmm. Could be. Could be. We should get that down, too. Could be. And a laugh, we can have him laugh. I mean, it, it could be like years that Fez isn't here that, that it feels like he is. You have the laugh. I know I do. That's what I'm saying. But we don't have all, we should have all the little different laughs, right? Like one where you go, ha, ha, ha. And another where you like cackle or whatever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or we could have an imitator come in. That's <laughs> uh, funny. All right. Anything else on this? Just well, I guess finishing. the last three, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Indianapolis, then the Rams, then Green Bay. So Green Bay is at Kansas City. Doesn't get tougher than that, right? Boy, that's a tough game to add, isn't it? <laughs> so I'll tweet this at RJ in Vegas. Thank you, Steve Fezzik. Thank you, McKenzie. I am RJ Bell. And we've got two best bets. Esler, Uncle Dave Diamond Dave, who... Saved himself some money when Gonzaga lost. Now, you had Baylor. Who'd you bet against? Who, who, you, oh, I, 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 against you? With you the, didn't bet against me. I didn't have Gonzaga. I don't remember that at all. You remember that, McKenzie? Yes, I thought you had Gonzaga. That's that Baylor in Illinois. I thought I put them two together. I didn't remember. Why well, I didn't remember no, that. I, Go the, ahead. I, I, I'll listen to the tape. I don't remember. But And then 
against Esler, you had what? You had Gonzaga in that case, yes. right? Yes, yes. So you had both sides of it. Yes. And you would have won against. So really, it was somehow Esler won money. Esler did not saved. win. Esler did not yeah, pick Baylor. Yeah, I remember. But Esler saved himself money, and you won it against me. And then somehow Esler avoids losing against me because I had Gonzaga against him, and he had Alabama. And Illinois, right? In Illinois. So somehow that game, I was rooting for Baylor for some reason. It swung me like $1,200. <laughs> wow. And you had so much the best of it. I mean. Uh, well, yeah. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a little draft later. And both of these are draft related. So we'll do one now, talk a little draft, and then do the second one. First one from the Hintman, specialist of these kind of bets. The first cornerback, yes, I know you're wondering, selected. And this one pays off good, 3-1. to one. Let's listen. Best bet, we're going to go to the NFL draft, take J.C. Horn to be the first cornerback taken in the draft. The draft is all about following the people you think are well-connected. And the ones that I followed think that this race to be the first cornerback is a lot closer than the implied odds. J.C. Horn right now has the same odds as Virginia Tech corner Caleb Farley, who possibly might not even be selected in the first round due to back injuries. In Daniel Jeremiah's latest mock draft, Horn goes one pick after the favorite, Patrick Sertan. Todd McShay's latest mock draft, he's again only one pick behind. Lance Zerline is saying that Horn is viewed as the cornerback one by multiple teams. In conclusion, it's a close call. Who's going to go first? So I'm going to take plus 300 all day when the implied odds should be closer to 40-45%. Best bet, J.C. Horn, first cornerback taken, plus 300. This is what the hitman, the translucent one, does best. He sees through. His skin is see-through, but he sees through the media and he finds value, he really does this exceptionally well. Let's talk a little more draft, and you can get him exclusively at pregame.com. You know, the one thing draft-wise I wanted to touch on was a lot of talk about the 49ers and them having a smokescreen or them trying to be deceptive. I feel like I debunked that today on SOV. It's a short one. I'm actually going to get McKenzie doesn't come off well here. So I'm going to give him a chance after we listen, another go at it. Let's listen, though, about with the domination, the, the deep pantsing of McKenzie. Let's talk a little bit about all the San Francisco 49er talk. And I'm going to pose the following question. And McKenzie, he went to Yale. He sometimes struggles to hit the mic, though. It's a very complex, like <laughs> it's a button right there and you press it. Yep. And and he is, you know, relate, first cousin with Kyle Shanahan and a staunch defender, staunch. His theory is maybe a lot of this Mac Jones stuff is a smokescreen. And my question is, and Mackenzie, I'll ask you, I'll ask Fez, I'll ask anyone, tweet me if you have a thought on this, at RJ in Vegas. We'll actually read it the next segment. If it's good, we set a high bar, at RJ in Vegas, answer this question. Why? Why would the 49ers waste any time with a smokescreen? The number one pick, Trevor Lawrence. Number two pick, Zach Wilson. By all accounts, if somehow the Jets decide that's not the case, then the 49ers probably feel pretty good about Zach Wilson at three. So, Because when you trade up like that, 
and give a king's ransom to get the three, it means that you are fine with at least three quarterbacks. Yes. It, it would make no sense to be fine with only two and think, I hope they don't pick Trevor Lawrence. I know they might, but I hope they don't. And then if they do, no way, Zach Wills, right? I know the odds say it's like 85%, but I'm hoping no. That's not the way NFL teams are working. They like a third guy. So whoever that third guy is, why have a smoke screen? I believe there's reasons not to have a smoke screen. One of those reasons being once you draft your third guy, if he feels like that you were behind him from the start, that you traded up and that was your guy and you got him, that gets you equity. That gets you buy-in. Uncertainty does what? It makes him feel like, I wonder if they really wanted me all along. Mm. I know it's a small thing, but why? Why? And then the idea of oh, Nick Saban saying he didn't talk about this, didn't talk about that. Why waste the bandwidth? What, you really think they didn't go see Justin Fields to deceive people? <laughs> let's say let's have less information so the media, McShay, doesn't know who we're picking. <laughs> Makes no sense. Mr. Yale, McKenzie, well, there's make been, your case. There's been some talk about what the Atlanta Falcons are going to do it for. My, uh, does, it doesn't matter. My, my thinking is if they can convince people that Mac Jones is their guy at three, there's going to be a lot of people in line saying, hey, well, Justin Fields is better than them. Let's trade up and get to the number three. And 49ers think, well, if we go to four, we know Trey Lance is going to be there. Whoa, 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 whoa. You just mumbled something. If we go to four, what do you mean if they go to four? If they trade with the Falcons. Why would they trade with the Falcons? Because the Falcons think if they give up a little bit, they can not only get their QB of their future, but Justin Fields, a better QB than they think they would get it for. But if, if, if they got people, you're saying if the 49ers are convincing people that Mac Jones is the pick, why would the Falcons, if they want Fields, not just sit there? <laughs> All right. Because they, they, they know that the 49ers don't need to be at three to get Jones, so that entices them. To, to trade move. up for what value, though? Meaning I could see someone else in theory wanting to trade up with the 49ers, assuming that... And listen, they think that's more possible if Jones is their guy. Okay, except when you trade... So what you're saying something very different than the Atlanta Falcons trade up now, right? You're saying if people think the 49ers are picking Jones, people might try to tempt them with a trade to like go from three to six or something because he might still be there. Well, if that was the case, the 49ers would have done better just to go to six to start with which was obviously available because the 70 or the Eagles were willing to trade it. They went for, they said, remember we said, oh, the idea that the Jets turned this down because why not go to two for the same package? Well, the same theory is they had to at least want to get to three because you know six was available cheaper, right? Right. So, and if everyone say, this whole idea Mac Jones wouldn't go till late is just total BS. This is what, I, well, first of all, do you have any theories on this, Faz? You know, you're the master of this stuff, not me, so I really don't. All right, here's the question. I'm R.J. Bower, straight out of Vegas. That's Steve Fezzik. Here's the question to me. Everyone's saying, why would you trade a king's ransom in order to have a guy kind of like Jimmy G, who might be maybe a little better than Jimmy G, accurate, you know, that kind of thing? Okay. Let's assume that's true. I don't think it's true. If you actually look at Mac Jones's Measurables. He ran like a four six eight. He's not a horrible. He's not a horrible athlete. Faster than Patrick Mahomes. Is that right? Forty time, yeah. Whoa, wowza! That's a lead story right there. Okay, the most the highest grade in PFF history 
I think they've been grading quarterbacks in college since 12, maybe. I'm not sure. But highest grade. And they're not looking at how open the receiver is. They're looking at the throw itself. This guy is a better – let's say he is only a better version than Jimmy G. They're getting him for five years cheap. The 50 are not as cheap. So now you can have Jimmy G at 25, 28 million or Mac Jones. I'll tell you the same thing at, you know, five, seven, eight, whatever it is. I mean, as a high pick, it's not nothing. But and then with all that money, you can buy better players than those picks could have bought. I like that take. Thus, if meaning the extra picks they trade. So if you believe that Mac Jones is a borderline sure thing at a modest level, let's say the 12th best quarterback then it's a hell of a move. And when you're an ego guy, like Kyle Shanahan should be, quite frankly, when you're an ego guy, you think, I don't need a great quarterback. I just need a good quarterback. Jimmy G was not quite good enough. Give me a guy as good, if not a little bit better, and give me another $20 million to spread around. Mm-hmm. We win that Super Bowl. And it feels like almost a sure thing. You take any project... They may turn out to be better. They may turn out to be worse and set your whole franchise back five years. Here, you're shooting for a double, not a home run, but Kyle Shanahan thinks he only needs a double. Okay, Mackenzie, we're going to give you a chance at redemption. I can't argue with anything you said. It doesn't make sense for it to be a smokescreen. That said, it doesn't make sense for them to tell everybody either. I don't think they're going to pick Jones. But who are they telling and first, well, hold on a second. What was my com- point about why telling would actually offer value to them? Because of Jones psycho- psychologically. Yeah. So what do you mean it wouldn't offer value? You don't think that him feeling like he was really wanted offers value? There's some of that, but I think they're going to try to bench him for a year. So you want to keep him humble How do at you, the same you time. You don't have any idea about no that. No insider knowledge. Just no, so- read the tea leaves like everybody else. But no, first of all, you were saying you don't think they're going to pick him. No, so how are you reading the tea leaves? I don't think they're going to pick Jones, but I, I do think they're going to keep Garoppolo as the starter for next year. Okay. And what are the are there odds out there on that? Yep. And what are the odds? He's minus 200 to be the third selection, Mac Jones. Uh-huh. Then Justin Fields is plus 200. No, but what about the odds of Jimmy G where he's going to be? It's minus 300. To play the first game in San Francisco, yeah. Okay. So what we're saying is there's a 75% chance or so – He'll stay in San Francisco, right? And we think that perhaps, I don't think by not being wanted, I think they can keep him humble pretty well in, in training camp. I think making him feel like, like, could you imagine coach going up and go, you know, a GM wanted you, I didn't. <laughs> Work hard. Is that, I mean, right? I don't get that. No. All right. That's Mackenzie. I'm a lotto, an albino, a mosquito. question is if he went to Yale what would you have to think my academic training was like somehow got like four PhDs from Oxford <laughs> like how would it kind of equate you think graduate studies no more than that, that. yeah more than that something something uh, wrote scholarship but also at the same time Wimbledon <laughs> wanted me to play there in the afternoon I don't even know is there like Yale like performing arts or something that there's Juilliard. like easier way well, to get for, in hold on a second are you, you're cutting on McKenzie after your performance today? I mean, they're gonna get, they're giving you a dementia test, right? I, I mean, the uh, lady's waiting out. I here. took my fish oil. Uh, well, then you need to double the dose. 
First off, Yale and Juilliard are not the same thing, Mackenzie. Do you think that? I was. It was just the elitist of elite performing arts school. But there is a Yale performing arts. That's where Jodie Foster went. Yep. And um, okay. So why yeah. would you not give Yale its credit and say no, Juilliard, which actually isn't at Yale, and there is a Yale one, and Jodie Foster went there <laughs> again because I didn't get into Harvard. Okay, I'm just a step below. <laughs> is Harvard harder than Yale? Yeah, I remember my first night at Yale. I, this this guy I was talking to was like, man. I wish I got into Harvard. But there's, but here's the thing. There's going to be some people that got in. It's not like it's going to be, you know, like, like the transitive property or whatever. It's not like. Yeah. So there could be, I mean, because Yale is going to have, uh, however they're doing, if it's, you know, whatever the uh, right term is in politically correct quotas or whatever. Yeah, how, a certain amount of cellists. Yeah, or a certain, however diversity they're trying to get academically, background-wise, whatever. It could be a given year they need someone from the Midwest or they need or they don't need anyone from the Midwest. So but that's an interesting question. Look it up for me. Is percentage of applicants accepted undergrad Yale Harvard? Take a look. I know in the law school at the time when I was considering law school, Harvard accepted 450 students in the law school a year. And I, got, I actually got accepted there. I'm proud of that. And Yale accepted 150, and I didn't. Huh. But again, I, it was only 150 students, but I, had, I still have a grudge, actually. Um, Harvard, ex- oh, wow, that's interesting. Both around 6%. Uh, this is the Fed story. So Harvard is 5.9, <laughs> and Yale is 6.3. So yeah, right Rounded around. <laughs> Northwestern had said, whoever will pay. That, I mean, it's weird. It was right there in the chart. <laughs> well, actually, now I squint. It says, whoever's dumb enough to pay. <laughs> now, did you, how much did you, did your parents have to dip into their trust fund for this? Yes. And did you, now that's interesting. And obviously, it's been decades and decades and decades and decades ago. <laughs> but how, like, how much, if you take the entire nut of you there for a year, and I, room and board, jock straps, or live with your friend, <laughs> what percentage was scholarship? And maybe it was none. I don't know. It's like 3%. So hardly any. Yeah. Okay. What percentage did you work really hard for, like summer jobs? And please, you, you realize if you lie about this, I'm, we'll spend the next hour drilling into it. So just maybe just kind of say the truth. Dayton Power and Light, $7 an hour. So my guess is about at most 15%. Oh, I wait, you're way too high. Another throw in 2%. Okay. So 97 or so percent of this came out of your parents' pocket. Yes. Uh, what, did you have any, like, grand urge now, listen, you're actually all joking aside. You're a good son. In later life, you're a good father and you're a good son. It doesn't change my general point, though. And we're trying to give credit where credit's due. Is how did you have any sense of how lucky you were? Unfortunately, I didn't. I do now. Could now you? that I'm on the other side exactly. as the father, so, you know, looking so at the son's even education. As were, even as you were moving towards being like 22, 20, you know, like graduating college you didn't have any real sense oh no sense until i actually was a father did it like start to click on and where did you think the money came from it's like you're like the kid that walks in the ice cream shop and says give me three 
scoops. Mm-hmm. Like he has no idea it even costs money. Did the, did your dad try to convey that to you at any point? At, at every at a very early age, my parents so emphasized education to us that it was just kind of a given. And if anything, I think. Um, but, wanna... but but that's presupposed. I mean, if anything, if education is important, that means you should be able to earn scholarships. Yeah. Because you could have went to a school that was one level lower and probably gotten a full ride. I don't know if that school exists. I mean, like a community college or something, because Northwestern is kind of low. But I mean, in my opinion, a lot of people like it, but I, you know, to me, it's. Uh, but did you even consider that? I probably should have because in. I remember playing a chess player from Rhode Island, and he says, oh, I'm on a full ride. Chess. Chess. And was he better than you? Slightly. Just slightly. But you didn't really work hard at it either, did you? I mean, there was a time, but by the time you quit, oh. you quit after your freshman year, so you didn't care that I, much. I was a state runner-up. I worked pretty hard at my chess well, in high school. But what I'm saying is a state runner-up, The question that doesn't answer how much you worked. I mean, did you work hard? I at worked it? hard on it. Uh, yeah, I did. Instead of going to college, or I'm sorry, instead of earning for college. <laughs> That's right. What what a wasted usage of time. It's true. More so than I realized, actually. Now I've got a little bit more to the story. Mackenzie, what percentage of yours was a scholarship? Like seventy percent. Really good. But still, that means it was like 10000 a year out of their pocket? Something like that, yeah. Well, I was the God. third of three kids going to college, so my first year, it was like way better than my last year as far as how much we had to pay. Because they, they take how much you can your family pay uh, as a whole. Okay, okay. Still, though, I mean, when I went to The Ohio State University, now, I mean, this could be applicable, it might not, but I did graduate first in my class out of 620 finance students. So it could be applicable. I had scholarships after the first year. They said, we want you to stay. Stay here. Then they got to look at my, my mullet, and they said, maybe not. My first year, counting, and again, this was great back in the day. I mean, this was in the early 90s. But the in-state sco- uh, tuition for Ohio State with room and board like the food was in it and the dorm, which wasn't great. 813 Park. Shout out. I wonder who's there now. Or is it even torn down? They had the big towers at Ohio State. We had like, I think it was like nine floors. We were on eight. And there was two elevators. And it was probably what? A thousand kids there? It was like 20 minutes to get up, up and down the elevator. Or just one way, 20 Would you minutes. take the stairs going no, down? No, fuck no. What the hell, eight floors? And the funny, th- the funny thing about Ohio State was it's such a big school. And I haven't been back there for five years to even see the campus. But to walk from one corner to the other, I'm talking about the real school. I'm not talking about the ag- agricultural school or something way out in the boonies. It was about 25 minutes. Hmm. It was a 25-minute walk. Like, I had, you know, North Cam- I was on South Campus. North Campus was 25 minutes away if it was corner to corner. So in the winter, you're walking for 25 minutes each direction for one class. Now, it wasn't always over there, but, you know. So I was probably walking hour and a half a day when I had class. 
So, you you know, you're not ready to do eight floors after that. Fair enough. But it was, and the elevators were the type that they'd get there, and it would take like four seconds for the doors to open. And they, they open real slow, like it's a game show or something. And then you'd get in, and people would be pounding on that up arrow, and it wouldn't move for about another eight seconds, and it would go real slow again. And then stop, and then hiccup, hmm. give you a little, and then start going, I, I think I'm having a flashback right now. <laughs> okay, finishing up. Book ending our draft talk, Diamond Dave Esler, who somehow took a catastrophe and made it a little bit better. I, I think I still got him, or maybe I broke even. No, since he didn't win with me, I still got him on the one out. Uh, what did he have? He had a Colgate, remember? Oh, he yes. Had Arkansas. Oh, he loved Colgate, like plus six and a half. Squeeze that toothpaste. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway, he has a two-to-one underdog. What? This is horrible. Is he real? I'm going to book him on this if he wants it. Is that a typo? <laughs> no. Is that the current odds? That's right, yep. Do you have his tax number, right? Sure, yeah. Tell, text him and see if he responds during the show. Is tell him I'll... Uh, I'll go um, 200 to win. I'll, I'll book him 200 to win 400. You if got he, it. If he wants it. All right. If he doesn't, he's scared. Let's listen. Let's let him make the case. A lot of it, I bet Justin Fields, plus 200 to be the third overall pick in the NFL draft. Look, Lawrence is one, Wilson's two, especially after the Jets just traded Donald. 49ers have the third pick. They didn't go there for no reason. It's no secret they'll trade Jimmy for a number one, which they won't get, especially with his contract. A lot of people, especially overnight, slot Mac Jones here. I'm going to respectfully disagree. If you look at Shanahan's offense, they ran 24 RPOs all season, half of them in 10 games with Mullins. At Alabama, 58% of Jones' plays are RPOs. You know, Shanahan said he wants change, especially after losing the Super Bowl to Mobile Mahomes and Mobile Josh Allen towards them last year. So enter Justin Fields, who had one of the lowest RPO percentages in college football. And 70% of Fields' yards came before the catch. To me, that signals Fields is a 49er, and I bet plus 200 that happens with a third overall pick. Have we heard from him yet, McKenzie? Not yet. Oh, coincidentally. <laughs> we'll see. Here, friends, we can get you involved in the show. So remember we did this and we saw if you could figure out how to talk within the empty space? Failed miserably. Well, last time, but in theory, you've gotten better. Your right. skill, I mean, you're, you're at home practicing your media presentation. So what's the next topic you, uh, we're going to talk about that you want to talk? You want to talk about a little bit about the Phoenix Suns. So I want you to tease within the donut, they call this. I want you to tease our discussion on the Phoenix Suns. We bet the Phoenix Suns 12 <laughs> to 1 <laughs> to win the division. <laughs> What was your thought process? You just talk as quickly as you can and, and hope to get... Like, what were you thinking? Can I start again? Yes. Tell me when you're ready. Ready. RJ and Fez. You thought the answer of the donut to talking... Oh. You, you realize a donut implied there was an empty space in the middle? May I start again? <laughs> is the nerd... What time is the nerd showing up, Kenzie? What time is the what? <laughs> is the nurse showing up for his diagnostic test? She said she couldn't be here for another 45 minutes, so... Tell her, stat, stat. <laughs> yeah, run red lights. 
right. Do you understand what to do now? How it's, explain it in layman's terms? You're we're gonna do it. Do what's no, no, called, no, 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 no. Oh, we're gonna do what's called a donut. Don't worry about that's not layman's terms. When I say explain it in layman's terms, don't use the one technical term <laughs> I use. Just in plain English. I'm going to wait till there's an empty space, and then I'm going to make Now, do you know? You've heard it a few times. Do yes. you know where the empty then space is? Then I'm going to make is? a key point. Then I'm going to let them talk again, and then I'm going to continue. And when you say talk, you mean let the music play? Yes. And when you say them, the faceless musicians that did it? Yes. Perfect. <laughs> we have Phoenix to win the division. <laughs> All right, let's see if I can do it. <laughs> we got the Suns. How good of a bet is it? That's not good enough. Um, let me think how I want to do this real quick. Um, we're celebrating the Suns. Is it premature? Go. Strong. So based on RJ's recommendation, and RJ we trust, 12-1, to 1, Phoenix to win the Pacific Division. We made that bet, I think it was about five, six weeks ago. Since then, Phoenix has played very well. How well will Phoenix currently has a two-and-a-half game lead over the Clippers? Lakers no longer a contender for the division. So it's basically a two-man race current line. Phoenix, Clippers, virtual pick them the rest of the way. And now some key games coming down the pipe. We are taping Wednesday night. Phoenix hosts Utah tonight. And Phoenix goes to the Clippers tomorrow night, Thursday night. Two key games in our division bet that uh, we would love to go ahead and see Phoenix go at least one and one the next two games. The Nets in the East. So Colin Cowherd on the herd today on FSR, like straight out of Vegas. We're on six Eastern, five days a week. Is he speculated that, hey, Durant's coming back tonight. And lo and behold, quote unquote, coincidentally, sarcasm hardens out. I think that assumption is playing wrong. One, Harden, and we had uh, like a tenth of a unit on Harden to win MVP. That's not looking so good with the absence. So we certainly had a good run at our money at 33 to one. And who knows? But yeah. Uh, I think he really was motivated. That was a, a big talking point in the NBA that he could win it. And number two, the number one seed is extra important. Make the case, Faz, and we'll do the math here. The assumption is one is so much better than two or three, but more so than usual because the likely number four seed is either Miami or in the East, Atlanta. So let's look at Atlanta, though Miami's a little bit better, and quantify for us how much of a difference there is in that second round. Yeah, so Milwaukee is a team I've got power rated four and a half points better than Atlanta and better than Miami. So so better than Miami by how much? By four and a half as well. So you got Atlanta. So wait a second. You got Atlanta and Miami equally power rated. Yes. Wow. And they're tied right now? Right now, Atlanta has a one game lead. And, in their division. And Miami has a, is a small favorite, right? Yeah, Miami's about minus 135 to win. So how can, they, how can they be even? So this is you just disagreeing with the market. That's right. So you're, are you high on Miami or high on Atlanta or low on Miami? I'm high on Atlanta. Okay. Atlanta's been playing very well. They're like five games below 500, and they now they're three above. They've just 
quietly. I think you've got a point there. I got, there was injuries, uh, getting rid of Rondo. I mean, is that – am I remembering that right or was that Orlando I was thinking? No, it was it, it was Atlanta, right? Got rid of Rondo? That's right. Yeah. 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 He wasn't a factor for them, so didn't matter. Well, but I disagree with that. I'm making the case that his presence there – well, first of all, when you say not a factor, he didn't play? He, he was Did he not play? putting up any numbers. But what I'm saying is we're talking about a team that got better. Yes. So if they got better and they got rid of Rondo, the theory is maybe he was a locker room mm. disruption, as in playoff Rondo, it wasn't the playoffs. He wasn't all that yeah, worried. good point. But continue. So if Brooklyn can get the number one seed and they play Atlanta. So the question is, how much harder is it going to be to play Milwaukee Two versus three than it is to play, let's say, Atlanta. Exactly. So if Brooklyn plays Milwaukee, they're going to win that about two-thirds of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's with home court, the theory is. Yes. If they get Atlanta, now all of a sudden we're looking at 85 88% chance of victory, so a much higher chance to advance in that second round of the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about it, we quantified it for you, but if you say, okay, second round, you know, literally a Milwaukee team that's surging or at least playing better and has done a lot of things that lessen the chance of – they've experimented. They, they, they increased their variance, big trade, all kind of things, playing differently, all trying to set up Giannis to succeed in the playoffs. How focused are they going to be? This is redemption. Imagine if Milwaukee makes the finals, how different the narrative is than if they get beat in the second round. The focus for Milwaukee and intensity is going to be massive. And considering how well they're playing versus an Atlanta team or a Miami team, it's night and day. And then the number one seed obviously would then have, if they make it through themselves into the conference finals, home court advantage. So to me, and who knows how many fans there's going to be at that point. So to me... Big, 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 big difference between one, two, and three. More so than a typical season. In the West, not much of a difference at all. In fact, teams trying to avoid the Lakers. Teams trying to avoid the Clippers. Yeah, you might even see some shenanigans in the last week in terms of teams saying, I'd rather be the four seed than the three seed. Certainly, that's not the case in the East. Which is another, which was part of my core handicap initially. Is And I think it's more so, and I'll be candid, when we look at tomorrow's lines, now I get that it's a back-to-back for Phoenix, but the Clippers line was what, five? Five. I mean, remember, we got a regular season power rating and we've got a postseason power rating. I think the Clippers postseason power rating is clearly better than Phoenix. Regular yes. season, I'm not sure it is, but here we go. And we did some math here, uh, Mackenzie. Back to backs are worth what, about a little more than two points? When yeah, playing last, against a non back to back? Last three years, two and a half points. You know what you should do? Do that same test. Well, it wasn't worth two. It was how many points? Two point? Two point three. Okay, yeah. Do me a favor. Do a test on, take the typical, in the same three years we did it, the typical road team versus a road team on a back-to-back and do the math there. And then, or I guess let's remove the back-to-back. So a road team with one or more days rest versus a road team with zero days rest. Get that delta and do the same thing with home teams. And let's see if it's the 2.3 is over home and road blended. Let, let's see if, if what the delta is at home and, and on the road. 
All right, Fez, we got anything else in the NBA? That's it on the NBA. All right, so we got best bets coming up from you. We already had two of them from the boys. And we've got a little bit of talk in baseball, right? Is that the end of it? That's correct. All right, so let's talk about baseball. And you've got a theory about the Dodgers. Started hot, they lost today. But I think we can project. This is a team that had a historic number of wins projected. I think the most since 99, if I remember, in the Yankees. And starting hot, it's very possible they're going to have a monster year. And we think there's a way to take advantage. Now, the obvious guys, the, let's say Fezzik last week, <laughs> he would have said, yeah, maybe look to fade him. But now you actually said something in all your talk that actually really perked up my ears. So let's focus on that. So let's, I'll give you the basics, and you don't have to repeat those. Dodgers are going to be priced sky high. A lot of times you think, well, in money lines, which is baseball, uh, being sky high isn't so public because the public doesn't want to lay minus 280. But with parlays, it can be a factor. So make that case where the inflation is driven by the parlay betting and how we can take advantage. Right. So a lot of the public bettors are going to play the money line parlays on the Dodgers. They'll parlay them with the Yankees, with the Padres, with other favorites. With Atlanta, all the other favorites. So what's going to happen is you're going to have some days where— So let's be clear. So the theory is you've got a pool. Imagine, like, the risk management. And this is something when we get Maddie Holt in the next couple weeks, we'll talk to him about— the different software does it differently. Some doesn't, quite frankly, they don't do it too well, some of them. And what it is, though, is the idea of, okay, what is the exposure in the exact pool, right? Side bets on the Dodgers. But then it's like, well, what exposure is correlated to it? As in um, parlays. But the question is, the complexity is, if the parlay is, you know, you got uh, a bunch of three-teamers, and the Dodgers are a part of some of them. How do you account for what the exposure is? Because unless it's the last leg of the parlay, you don't really know. Exactly. So there might be 100,000 in cumulative parlays starting out that have the Dodgers as the last leg. On a given night. Yeah, because they're on the West Coast, you know, late start time. Well, that's the key distinction is because they are late start time, oftentimes, though the example you gave on the Padres wouldn't be an example of this. Right. That's why just random examples probably, if not thought through, aren't good. But is the idea is, hey, there's going to be a lot. And sometimes these are two-team parlays. So if you have the Yankees and the Dodgers on a parlay, a typical two-teamer, Yankees win. Now, even before the Dodger game starts, now let's think about this. So 7 o'clock games go. How often are they... Are those 7 o'clock games done by the start of the 10.30 Eastern games? Not often, is it? Not often. However, usually you can tell whether they're going to win or not. Mm -hmm. But you got to wonder, are the books? Because the theory is the books are going to say if the game was final, all the risk management software updates, and it says, uh-oh, your exposure just went way up on the Dodgers. And what they would do is say, hell, we don't want any more Dodgers money. Let's jack that price up and let's try to get some dog action. Right. And what I find interesting, and it's something we should just watch, is are we seeing late moves towards the Dodgers, odds in the Dodgers getting worse, the late price growing? And if so, this would be an example where it has, it's, it's misaligned with 
the chance of the Dodgers winning the game. Anytime I can bet against the line move, when the line move has nothing to do with the team's chance to win the game, it's due to external factors. That's the definition of value. Now, you could have had a bad line to start with, so but you know that delta is giving you at least that much extra value because there's no rhyme or reason that the Yankees winning or losing should affect the chance of the Dodgers winning. But it affects the exposure on those parlays and in theory might lead them to increase the price. I think if the games were final, they, it certainly would have that effect because they're looking at exposure. If the game isn't final, do they have if-thens in there, like pro formas? I don't think so. But I don't know. I think we watch it. I, t- I, I agree, and I do think the sports books are aware of this during the summer months. I got to tell you, there's. I, I aware look, of what? Did they have a lot of parlays on the Yankees and Dodgers? Oh, yes. I mean, well, I know that. You but just like, see them shaking their heads whenever you see the Yankees going ahead. They're like, oh, God, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna need so the, this so late the game. The bookies don't like the public teams winning. Well, I think it's magnified in baseball when there's just that, there's so much. Action on baseball in the middle of the summer, especially when so no one else. You mean relative to? Uh, okay, there's no other sports going so, on but, then. Okay, so they don't like the f- the big public bat teams winning. Yes, they're aware of that. They're aware of their own. Well, feelings. they're often shocked by the liability that the computer spits out after the early games go final, and they're like, "How the heck do I have a five hundred thousand dollar position?" That brings on this up an game? interesting point: is that assumes it can, it's being spit out because the game's final. So maybe there's day games, maybe on Saturdays where there's, you know, day and night. It's just something I think to keep an eye on because if I am inclined towards the dog anyway and then there's a late move that gives me more value on the dog and I feel like that isn't about backing the favorite but it's about some external factor. That's when I like it. By the way, Fez on SOV had – don't turn around and look. Don't turn around. You got some bad news for you, Steve. He had Durant – in his game back, Durant, you had over a half of block, a block. Now, that means just one or more. And you were laying, what, minus 170 or something? Yes. In the first half, he only played eight minutes. That's the bad news. Give me the good news. He did have one block already. Yes! <laughs> I, the funny thing is, even live on radio, I go, the thing that causes me pause here is I, we have no idea how many minutes he's going to play. Now, if you knew he was going to play 16 minutes, would you have bet that? And you saw – no. God, and, no. And, and you saw my – that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Got lucky. I got lucky. Hey, when you bore the silver spoon in your mouth. Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. As you guys know, beloved Fez with the bookies was having a convo with the bookies about his college football, not his specific betting, but in general. Why don't you share that before you give us your uh, best bet? By the way, FCS 8-2, and two, all access with Fez at pregame.com, 8-2 and two on the season. Yeah, so I asked Matt Metcalf, what's the deal here? We're not, you're not with a- which business? With the FCS lines. Which business? Which sports book? Circus Sports. You might want to mention that. Thank you. Continue. Circus stopped posting lines on the FCS games the last three weeks. And so I inquired with Matt Metcalf, and he said, Steve, you know. So, so once again, the conversation starts where your money gets hurt. Yes. He said there's just not enough volume. to je- it, it, It's just not worth our time to put these numbers up. There's just not enough people betting them. 
but somehow you're eight and two. Yes. Give us your best bet. All right. I am on Southern Utah minus four hosting Northern Arizona. Southern Utah is undervalued. This team's one and four. Doesn't look very good. Amazingly, all four losses have been by a field goal or less. Four really close games. Their win was by 10 points. But uh, they're getting priced like they're a one and four team. And what I really like about this game, RJ, the first game of the this year. This feels like 1978 stuff. Like, so is it just because there's not huge action on it that, I mean, they don't even look to see what the, like their net margin is? They do not. The amount of work that the sports books are doing to make these lines is just not at the level that they would for And, and how much are the football. betters moving the lines? Well, the best bet I gave last week, plus four and a half, closed as a two-point favorite. Okay. So six-point line moves. Is that are how that usual. works? Is that, is that, all right, go, continue. What I really like about Southern Utah is the first game of the season, they played this Northern Arizona team. They went to Northern Arizona. They dominated the game. They were up by five points. They were driving. They're in the red zone with two minutes to play. Somehow they managed to lose this game. So I think it sets up for an enormous revenge spot for a team that was on the road, should have won on the road, gave the game away. Now they're home. I'm laying the four, Southern Utah. Ace Rothstein was a hell of a handicapper. I can tell you that. I was so good that whenever I bet, I could change the odds for every bookmaker in the country. All right. Any closing thoughts? I'd bet it early. It's probably going to move. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, listen, you're the two-time Super Contest champion. All right, boys, that was lean and mean. Talk to you next week.